This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh. Right, okay, good afternoon. Um, well, welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is Thomas Arnott. I teach at the School of History, Classics, and Archaeology here in Edinburgh. Um, and it's a great pleasure to introduce um, Dr. Nicholas Philipson today. Uh, many of you will know him already. Um, he holds degrees from, from Aberdeen and from Cambridge. He taught at Edinburgh for many years um, uh, and uh, is, is obviously still, still active here, is still an honorary fellow at the School of History, Classics and Archaeology. He is um, one of the leading scholars of the Scottish Enlightenment in the world today. Um, he has written and published very widely on Enlightenment Scotland. Uh, many of his articles have become classics in the field. Um, and he is also well known for the books he's written. Um, one of these is um, a study of Hume, which first appeared in 1989, is by now. Um, well, it's, it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful, lucid introduction to the thought um, of David Hume. It has recently been reissued, um, well, uh, sort of just, you know, in, the, in the tercentenary year of Hume's birth in 2011 by, by Penguin. He has also. Um, published last year a um, massive biography, intellectual biography of um, Adam Smith, which is the fruit of many years' uh, work. Um, this book has won um, a range of range of prizes and um, has also led to um, extended speaking tours throughout the, throughout the world, um, which I, I gather are, are still continuing. So it's a very great pleasure to have um, Nicholas Philipson here today to speak to us about Hume and the Science of Man. Oh. <laughs> I don't think I've begun a lecture with O before. Um, uh, actually, um, I'm going to talk to you about Hume as philosopher, Hume as historian. But the notion of a science of man will lurk around in, in, in the background. Um, well, thank you very much to Pauline for um, asking me. It's a great pleasure to be able to talk about Hume, after having been talking about Adam Smith for so much for the last couple of years. And I, I want to um, talk about Hume from the point of view of a historian, which is indeed what I am, and the paradox that Hume's career, uh, his intellectual career, presents to the historian. We know him, we value him, rightly, um, as the author of the Treatise of Human Nature, a book whose history begins in when Hume was in his late teens, um, a book which he finished and published in 1739-1740, a book which we now know as one of the greatest, many would say the greatest, um, exercise in the philosophy of mind and the theory of knowledge in English, in English and perhaps in the other language. Um, a book uh, which cleared the ground seriously for the first time for what contemporaries called an experimental approach to the study of man, the study of human nature. The book, as we all know, famously, flopped commercially on its first publication. Hume was dismayed, and Hume disowned the treatise in quite unequivocal terms, in public and in private. 
It was never republished in his lifetime. Um, and um, it was a book of which Hume said he, re- he it was conceived in the, in, the, in, in, in the first flush of youth, it was rushed into print, and he regretted its publication a thousand and a thousand times. However, that is not how Hume's contemporaries remembered him. Some of his, his contemporaries remembered him for his essays, moral and political, which he wrote in the 10, 12 years after the publication of the treatise. Essays called Essays Moral, Political um, and Literary. Um, but much more for the massive history of England, which he began to write in 1752 and finished in 1753. It really is massive. It's a million words. It's six volumes. It was extensively um, republished. Knock over the table. Uh, it was extensively republished in his own lifetime, even more extensively republished um, after his death. Um, in England, in Ireland, in uh, America, and is translated into most European languages. It will remain in print until the second half of the 18th, 19th century. It will be regarded as the standard history of England before it's displaced by that of Lord Macaulay. Um, it is a history that made Hume famous. Um, it, it, made, it established his, his position as one of the leading historians of the Enlightenment among people like Edward Gibbon, among Diderot, d'Alembert, and so forth. It is, um, if you like, an academic professional success as well as being a popular success. And as I say, it made Hume stinking rich. Um, the trouble is, we don't read it today. Um, you can't use the excuse that it's difficult to get hold of because you can find sumptuous editions in every antiquarian bookshop which will cost you a lot of money if you want to spend it Um, but it's now out in uh, a cheap edition too but it is fascinating to me as a historian to find how uneasy philosophers still are in handling the treatise I often feel that um, Hume regretted um, the, the, the rash and early publication of the treatise a thousand and a thousand times. I sometimes think that philosophers now regret the publication of the history a thousand and a thousand times. The difficulty is knowing what on earth you do with it. But on the other hand, if we are to understand Hume, if we are to understand the quality and the character of his thinking, it seems to me as a historian that it is absolutely essential that we establish a bridgehead between the history of England and the treatise of human nature. And we need to do so bearing in mind the value that Hume himself attached to the history of England. He lavishes endless time on revising, tweaking, polishing the history of England. Um, He's, in fact, um, correcting the proofs of what was to be the posthumous edition, the posthumous and definitive edition of the treatise when he was on his deathbed. 
You can't get away from it, as Victorian philosophers used to try and get away with it, was saying, well, Hume was just cynically um, writing for money. Or um, the equivalent of writing for the telly now, actually. In fact, actually, if he made even more money, if if he'd been able to televise the history of England. Um, But, I mean, the, uh, the point was that you can't get away from the problem by saying that this was, that Hume himself did not regard this history as particularly serious. It was, some, it was a money spinner, um, it was fun to do, but that was it. That won't work. Hume, as I say, took his history of England with great seriousness. Um, and as I say, it is with the problem of putting together those two sides, the two bookends, if you like, of his intellectual achievement that I think is the problem that faces historians. And in many ways, I suspect, although I'd love to debate this properly with um, some philosophers, I suspect it matters philosophically as well. Now, let me explain what I want to do. We think of Hume as either a philosopher or as a historian. And indeed, in old library catalogues, you will find that sometimes Hume is actually described in library catalogues as Hume, philosopher and historian. I want, this suggests Hume, in fact, practised two distinct academic disciplines. I think this is a mistake, and I think it's a very important mistake. And what I'm going to suggest to you is that we should think of Hume as someone who, in fact, collapsed two distinct disciplines into each other. He was a philosopher who was to draw on the resources of history uh, in order to execute the philosophical task he had set himself in in writing the, the treatise. He was a historian who did not believe that history could teach the examples that history should teach, it couldn't be, as we would put it today, relevant unless it drew on the latest discoveries of philosophy. In other words, I'm suggesting that we should, it, it, it would be helpful to start thinking of Hume as a philosopher, historian, or historical philosopher. The, the two terms I, I would regard as, as, as interchangeable. And what I want to do is to elaborate this point um, and to try and show you what I mean. Now, let's start with the foundation stone on which Hume's philosophical revolution, because it is not, um, uh, um, uh, it is not too, uh, too much to describe it as such, His demonstration, which we need to remember, is to be taken by his contemporaries as absolutely decisive, that all claims that reason has the power to regulate the workings of the the mind and to authenticate the truth value of those propositions um, uh, um, or to write, write off the truth value of propositions um, that occur in the mind. Hume was to demonstrate decisively that those claims about the power of reason um, are illegitimate unless we make the crucial 
assumption that our reason has somehow been magically supercharged with cognitive powers of which we cannot possibly be aware. Um, now, Hume, Hume's conclusion from this, and it was a conclusion arrived from the meticulous inspection of the workings of his own mind um, in those extraordinary and brilliant cognitive experiments he performs on himself and describes for us, particularly in the first volume of the treatise. Hume's conclusion, and it's a famous one, is that the regulating principle of the mind is, lies in the imagination, but that the way the imagination works needs to be understood also by reference to the power of the passions um, and to the working of habits and customs, education. That sort of experience, he, as he would describe it, that we acquire in the course of common life. Now, contemporaries who had... I mean, th this is very difficult to fully grasp, and contemporaries um, wrote this off as a radical scepticism, um, and had difficult, uh, and, uh, um, but it was enough to give him the reputation for being an infidel, quite rightly, because what Hume's um, uh, 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 conclusions point to is the fact that we cannot ascribe truth value to any propositions, any systems of science, uh, in fact, that are the products of the mind and the imagination. Not even mathematics. Ma mathematics is the fascinating one. Ever someone wants to, if someone wants to, be, to, to make a global reputation, they will find Hume's withdrawn essay on mathematics. Um, he showed it to a mathematician who didn't like it, and it's vanished. And if only that would turn up. I used to get students, actually, to try and say, right, imagine what you might have said about math mathematics. Um, uh, um, uh, none of them convinced me, but I, it's, 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 a, it's a fascinating thing. We might come back to that later. Not even mathematics was immune from this. The mathematical truth falls, according to a strict reading of Hume's theory of mind. Religion tumbles, vanishes without trace. Um, um, but, so, as I say, the first shock effect of that was to undermine the truth value of any proposition, whether from a scientist or from a person in common life, um, about, the, uh, 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 the, um, um, about the world. Um, and the second point that it, it, it establishes for us um, is that we are now required to think of the, the conceptions, the beliefs that are present in our mind, the whole complicated structure, fabric of belief, of which our minds are full, as things which are acquired by an enormously complicated process of cognitive education um, uh, and assembled in the mind. But uh, uh, their origins are to be thought of in terms of things that are acquired, things that are then processed in the mind. Now, what this means 
And in fact, what Hume's extraordinary metaphysical experiments on himself, his introspective experiments show, is that if we want to understand the workings of the mind, and particularly of our minds, the way to do this is to study the events in, in, of the mind, the, the beliefs we have, and to, dis- and, and to study, in fact, the, um, the events which explain the origins of those beliefs. Now, if you think about it, that is a deeply historical remark. What Hume has established himself as, as let us call him an 18-year-old, um, um, in the treatise is someone who's first of all interested in events and what are historians interested in but events events but the events which take place in the mind or have taken place in the mind events which in fact collectively will explain how um, will explain actually we would put it the, the workings of the human personality statement collectively but um, events which have taken place in the course of historical time, in the course of our own lifetimes. Hume, whether or not, however much he realises it at that particular moment, is in fact thinking historically. And the point I want to make is that Hume's genius, one huge strand of Hume's genius, is to understand the depth of the historical claims that this line of thought leads to. Because, think it through, if it is true that we wish to understand the, um, uh, uh, um, uh, the workings of our own peculiar personalities and the belief systems which have shaped it, the belief systems um, about the world, about politics, about taste, about history, about everything, um, then in fact you inquire, you should inquire um, into, the ex- into the forms of experience from which these beliefs have come. But then, Hume says, we should remember that those beliefs have been acquired in a specific, at a specific time, at a specific place, in, um, and that is going to mean almost certainly um, in a particular country, with a particular constitution, with a particular culture. And so, in fact, all the customary basis, the habit-forming basis that is built in to this approach to the study of the contents of the mind needs to acquire, if we're to, if we're to acquire a full rather than a partial, a general understanding of human nature, we are bound to move one stage back to the history of the, the society in which those in, in which our cognitive education took place. But Hume doesn't stop there. What he, what he fully realises is that actually the history of the societies in which we are born, we live, we live in, which we're, in, in, in which our moral, our, 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 our moral political, cultural education has been formed, need to be seen as, in fact, part of the history of a wider civilization of which we are part. In, in the case of Hume's world, um, of a civilization which is emerging from a feudal age into a, in, in, into a commercial age. Um, and so what, in fact, um, um, uh, 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 so what, in fact, 
Hume's attempt to provide a general history, a, a science of man, to use the term Thomas uh, 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 introduced me by, um, a science of man is in, going to, is in fact, does in fact involve a laminated view of history. It means being aware that human, the human personality is formed by individuals' exposure to the common life of a particular world. It involves, it involves inquiring in to the structure, the belief structure, uh, of that particular society, which is, going to, which is going to have to start in Hume's world with politics, um, and, uh, and uh, we're going to start with justice, actually, politics, um, and the moral and cultural world that stems from that. It is going to have to conclude with the study of what happens, of, of how that sort of the culture of that sort of society is conditioned, and the politics of that sort of society is conditioned by the circumstances of the civilization in which those particular that particular society found itself. This is an extraordinarily um, laminated um, and deep, by any standards, um, deeply sophisticated view. Of, of, of what history is and it's and what I find fascinating about Hume is the way in which he will take up the challenge to his historical sensibility if you like um, in pursuing uh, what becomes a, 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 an approach to the science of man and I should say just in parenthesis that I believe that this sort of historical thinking this laminated, deeply, uh, deeply sophisticated form of historical thinking is going to have a profoundly, a profound influence on shaping all sorts of sectors of the thinking of the Scottish Enlightenment. But as I say, I do th want to. As I say, my major point here is that we should think of one of the major strands of Hume's um, intellectual genius to realise that the business of placing the study of human nature on, uh, on experimental foundations is an exercise which is going to demand not just conventional skills of the historian, but the development of a, um, what one might call a deep historical approach um, to the study um, of, of, of humankind. Now, Hume, um, as I say, dismayed by the, uh, by the commercial failure of the treatise, although let us just remember in footnotes that the treatise, uh, Hume exaggerates on, uh, on the failure of the treatise. I mean, he was, he was looking at uh, sales figures, and they weren't very good, no doubt, but uh, the, the people who did read the treatise when it came out are people who really, really matter. Um, and the, um, the, re the reading of the treatise by the few people who did read it um, uh, is reading that is going to have enormous consequences for the um, way in which philosophical discussion is shaped for the next generation. But anyway, that's beside the point. <coughs> now, but as I say, it's, it's what happens after that is interesting. Because if we look at Hume's many, many essays on, on moral, political, literary subjects, and particularly to his political essays written in the 1740s, 
what we find is that there, um, what lies behind them is an interest in quite specific beliefs, in the political beliefs, largely of England, actually. This is, this is a Scot writing about um, uh, um, uh, laying down the law uh, uh, to, the, uh, to the English. Um, but um, th- uh, what the backbone of these essays um, is Hume's investigation of the belief systems of English politics. And the belief systems of English politics need to be understood, he thinks, uh, in terms of the belief systems of English political parties. And the belief systems of English political parties need to be understood in terms of attitudes to the Constitution, attitudes to the liberties that the Constitution is supposed to enshrine, and therefore to the origins of that constitution and the stories that are told about the origins of that constitution. It's done in a very interesting atmosphere. Party political discourse in the middle of the 18th century is intensely ideological. It's something we tend to think of the 18th century as clumpingly functional. You know, there, there were largely corrupt politicians pursuing their own interests in their own ways, um, getting on with the business of managing their estates and making lots and lots of money, um, um, and all the rest of it. What has only become recently clear to us as historians, but was clear to Hume at the time, um, is just how uh, how deeply ideological party divisions were. Um, And so Hume's, the the centre theme of which runs through essay after essay after essay is Hume's interest in the nature of party, what are parties, Hume's interest um, uh, in uh, the extraordinary thing that modern parties are, are ideologically charged. By and large, parties have been around forever. You know, they're usually uh, family parties or parties of interest or something. But the weird thing that has happened in the modern age is that parties are ideological things. And it's, um, people are fighting each other politically um, and often extremely bitterly on ideological grounds. And this is not, these are not just party divisions that are to be found in Parliament. These are now spreading out via the periodical press, which is booming. This is boom age in terms of, of communi- the history of communications. It is infecting absolutely all areas, all countries of the, of the, of the modern British state. And, this is, and Hume is fascinated about this. And what he does are two of the absolutely central essays uh, in the book. Uh, He provides um, extraordinary analyses of the ideological core of the two most important parties, the Whig Party and the the High Tory Jacobite Party. And what he does is he simply does an anatomy of the belief systems which support Whiggery and he describes it to us. He says, um, it's deceptively simple to us now. Um, he describes the uh, Whigs as people um, uh, who um, believe that there was, there is an English constitution which had its roots in dim and distant antiquity, um, uh, was the product of a contract 
um, between the king and people, um, uh, about the powers of the king and about the powers of a proto-parliament. Um, um, uh, he then puts side by side with it uh, the Tory equivalent. The origins of government lie in kings, um, a line of kings which begins in the immemorial past. Um, uh, and in fact, um, it is kings who have always maintained the political stability of England. Um, and in fact, um, the duty, it has always been accepted that the duties of citizens to kings uh, is uh, uh, passive obedience. Now, the way um, I invite you to put 18th century glasses on and read those essays, because they, are, um, they, they look straightforward, and you think, what on earth is all this stuff about? But, um, but that is how it, they appeared at that time. What is so interesting is the way Hume can put a, a belief system on the table and dissect it entirely accurately. They're very, very discriminating, careful... Every word has been chosen in both of those essays. But what he's done is he's presented the British public with um, actually a brilliant anatomy of the beliefs that they hold. And very short, too. And they leave you with the, uh, with the response. Is that really what people uh, believe? Um, is that all it is? Um, he, do, he does it in such a way, and he's done that, it's a trick he, he, he learnt when he was writing the treatise, of exposing couplings we make, the way we can connect beliefs and, and the consequences we draw them from. And you think, this is very odd. He may, the, the first reaction you have to these is to say, the, this is, uh, you don't doubt that Hume is telling the truth, or that this is actually an accurate anatomy. But it's done in such a way that you think, why should anyone believe in it? Um, uh, and he doesn't give you any. He doesn't draw any conclusions from this. Uh, just presents this as a fact, which people will regard as a fact, and then leaves you to think. Well, uh, where does that leave us now? And anyway, even if you believed them, the way the thing the essays are written are to suggest to you. Well, what on earth has this description? of ideologies which was, um, or, or, or institutions that were supposed to be set up over a thousand years ago, what possible relevance can they have for us now? Both of these, that, that line of question is thrown up um, by, by the way he does it. But there, this is Hume, in fact, treating um, political, party political beliefs in England in exactly the same way that he treated his own study of the, uh, of the metaphysical beliefs he himself um, uh, um, uh, has um, and writes uh, and anatomizes uh, in the treatise. It's exactly the same thing. And another, another thing comes up, which is very odd, and some people noticed. Hume is treating this English fetish for believing that the English constitution is of immemorial antiquity as being just as illegitimate, just as absurd, and just as dangerous as the assumptions which the faithful believe about the divine origins of our reason. Um, and, the, um, and, and, and as I say, um, this is Hume preparing the ground, it seems to me, for what is going to come next, the history of England. Because the history of England, he's going to address some of these problems. 
and they're interesting problems. When, in fact, did people seriously start believing in this stuff about ancient constitutions, whether or not they're monarchical or whether or not they're Whiggish and limited? Um, when did they do that? Um, that's, that becomes a really very interesting po a political hist historical question. And then um, the equally in interesting question, what in fact sort of constitution was there in antiquity? Um, and you can begin to see the framework for, for a history of England. Now, if you give the history of England as it now is to many historians... Um, you will find that people will say, and I'm thinking of a, of a, of a dear, no, not, he's not a dear colleague, um, because he's got a very, very bad temper, um, uh, but an old and respected <laughs> colleague with whom it is sometimes fun to have a pint, uh, who believes that Hume, he cannot understand Hume's reputation, because Hume was a lousy historian, and why? Because he didn't go to the archives. What, um, what my friend, and I better tell you it's Bill Ferguson, um, uh, uh, um, will say, what did he find out that contributed to our knowledge of the, uh, of the history of England? Hume, he, and he will make the point that Hume simply sat in his study in a comfortable armchair and pulled the books off the shelf um, and just cobbled it together. Well, you can't deny that. That's exactly what he did, except he did most of it in the National Library of Scotland, or i.e. the Advocates Library. But the interesting thing is that the fact basis of the history of England is indeed deeply unoriginal. Hume really does um, pull the books off, the standard books off the shelf, and pulls out the raw material, you know, the bleeding data chunks, and uses them. One of the reasons he wrote actually some of it very quickly. In fact, uh, um, I, one of my graduate students once did a check on the Tudor history of England, and couldn't because he couldn't understand how Hume wrote it so quickly. And then found Hume was copying it out. Um, and then, um, but he was adding, and that of course is where it gets interesting. But the point is that it seems to me that what Hume was doing was actually really very interesting indeed, because what he is doing is drawing on the database used both by Whig and Tory historians. He's used his data, um, and goodness knows they had enough antiquaries uh, working for them, but what he is doing is he's using data which people from the right, left, and centre of politics would have regarded as, the, or did regard, as the standard data which had to, be, had to be used as the scaffolding of every history of England. In other words, this was to be a history which everyone could use. You were, he wasn't, Hume did not want the story, did not want to have thrown at him, why haven't you put it, pulled in this line of argument? That shows you must be a political enemy. Um, it's a consensual activity on his part to use, or the data there is data which no one from any um, level of politics could have quarrelled with. Hume hasn't missed out anything the contemporaries. And this, I think, is one of the reasons it's not altogether easy for um, non-historians um, really to get into the history of England. Um, it is because um, uh, um, if you're in the trade, you can see what he's doing with the data. If you don't know the history of England 
And if you certainly don't know the way the history of England is told in the 18th century, you'll rather miss that. Um, and, the, that and I think that's, that's a real problem that philosophers have um, with, with, with handling the history of England. Philosophers are wonderful at handling the metaphysical experiments that Hume does on the contents of the mind. They understand that. But they have no reason to understand the, um, the story of his, history writing um, in the 18th century. Um, it's a real, real problem, that. So, as I say, the data that Hume is using is data which is consensually orientated. It's, it's designed to cut across um, uh, um, um, uh, party political um, 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 barriers. Um, and it's interesting. Um, um, and, but then what is interesting is what he does with this story. And in general terms, the theme of the history of England um, is to expose these stories um, and these accounts of different events on the page and continually to ask, does this add up, let us say in the case of 17th century history, does this story really have to be interpreted in terms of a wicked king trying to subvert the constitution and the, the, the liberties of his subjects? The sort of thing, in other words, which people kept accusing James I and Charles I of. Is that, is that really, uh, does that really look right? How about this? Um, and uh, that, uh, and Hume will do this continually. Now, the interesting thing is that it, it, it is worth saying just a word or two about the history of the history, because it is an odd one. Hume began um, um, with the history of James I and Charles I. Um, and the origins of the English Civil War. It's fascinating that he wanted to put the Civil War as, you know, right centre stage, as the, um, as the event which we have to understand if we are to understand modern history. No one would have seriously disagreed about that, but it's the way that Hume has done it. Uh, he's, he's gone out of his way in the way he organises the original volumes of the of the history, um, just dramatise this. It's the ultimate catastrophe. And I'll say something about that in, after in questions if you're interested about in that. Um, and he, um, but he um, he then goes on and completes the history of the 17th century up until the Glorious Revolution, which is the grand climax of his book, the Glorious Revolution of 1688, which everyone Whig, Tory high church, low church, will accept is the foundations um, of, the uh, of the constitution we have now. Whether it's a reaffirmation of old principles or the establishment of new principles, they debated about endlessly. But he, those two fixed points, the civil war, the glorious revolution, Hume really wants to build around that. But having done that, uh, he finds he has reached a really rather difficult conclusion and a, a conclusion which was to become deeply controversial the way he analyzes the struggles for power between crown and parliament which characterized the history of the entire 17th century um, is to say that he does not see any case for saying that there is a plot on the part of the early Stuarts or the later Stuarts to create an absolute monarch 
monarchy which will overthrow an ancient constitution and ancient liberties. Um, all his discussion is to say, well, if we take the classic events in this story, it doesn't look very much like that. It looks partly due to muddle, and it's not difficult actually to demonstrate muddle, and historians have been, have been doing the same in writing about 17th century history for the last generation. Muddle by actually pretty un, unimpressive kings. Also, and this was something that again never vanished from the, uh, uh, from the late 18th, 19th century political agenda, to make the suggestion that it wasn't in fact the king who was trying to press, the, um, uh, uh, to overthrow the power of, of parliament. It was in fact a parliament itself. He's very, very interested in the way in which the radic uh, radicals in politics so far from defending ancient liberties, we're actually creating them on the job. And again, you, he, using absolutely conventional 18th century material, he's able to spin the story to show that. It was hugely, that was going to be hugely controversial. And the third thing was to say, and this again was to become controversial, Hume was to pay great attention to the role of the church and priests in stirring the pot at every point because he became interested in how on earth was it that simply intellectual disagreements endless fruitless debates between the court and parliament about who really what the ancient constitution really was and was it a monarchy was it a, 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 a limited monarchy why should debates, intellectual debates like that, stupid intellectual debates like that, which don't even sound plausible, how did they, how did they acquire the power to make people fight? And Hume inserts something at this point which really is his own, and it couldn't be more Humean. It is, in fact, religion. In Hume's argot, um, religion is the only force... By, def by deflecting your world, your, your mind from the real world to the world hereafter, the life hereafter. Um, the, it, religion is the only force that has the power um, to, turn, to, turn I to give ideas um, uh, what he calls um, enthusiasm um, or, in fact, turn ideas into ideological superstitions. And so his story, his own, this is, this, I say, this is absolutely quintessential Hume. And uh, this, is, uh, this is Hume, again, going beyond local data. No one suggested that quite in those terms before. But Hume, again, is on a tightrope. Because what he's done is he suggested that the origins of the Constitution is modern. Parties, the origin, original history of parties in England, from which the modern parties claim descent, is pretty disreputable. Um, 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 and um, what, he, uh, what he now has to do, um, uh, and, what he's, and the conclusion this leads him to, if the ancient constitution is modern, if the uh, constitution has been a constant matter of party political squabbling, um, what, do, what does that say about the Constitution? Um, and Hume will, makes the point that it first of all shows that actually the English Constitution, like any other, he says, is always in a state of flux. There is no such thing as an ancient Constitution. That is a, and that again is a very, very... 
it's very, very difficult for English people at that time to accept that. It's actually maybe quite difficult to accept it now. Try it on any American. Um, but that is that is you know that is the really difficult conclusion that this exercise in writing the history of the 17th century leads to. It's as difficult as Hume's conclusions um, about the principles of knowledge um, to uh, for people to absorb. It cuts so far, so deeply against an established political language. Um, but I want to end by saying that the, the, the end of this was. Hume was then in a position of saying, well, if the Constitution is modern, what the hell was there before? And so he moves backwards in time, first of all to the Tudors and the Reformation, where these furious religious disputes first became lethal, um, and then back beyond that to the medieval history of England. And um, because I, I, I must stop, in fact, and I'll telescope what I was going to say, um, the interesting thing is that first um, he, he, he wishes to dispense with the idea that the feudal age and the pre-feudal age in English history could possibly have produced a regular system of government in which there were defined constitutional relations between the king uh, and a feudal baronage and a people. After all, the people are serfs. Um, um, uh, and even yeah, even uh, uh, even tenants in chief of feudal barons, as I say, um, had no liberties. Um, and who were the feudal baronage? The feudal ba- uh, um, the story of feudal baronages is the story uh, of Afghan warlords. Uh, to be so vulgar, it's not true. Um, but it's that 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 is the way they are presented. These are people, the king is the first among equals. He either has greater or lesser strength as a military commander than they do. He's either cleverer or not so cleverer. But the notion that you could, that the feudal age was capable of generating um, a stable constitutional form of government isn't, Hume argues, um, it isn't historically credible. And this is where he introduces his history of civilization. Because what's opened up to us is the history of European civil European feudalism, and this is where, as I say, you can see Hume drawing on this third level of history, the history of civilization, as a way of undercutting the credibility, the last level of credibility um, of these uh, prim- primitive beliefs. In the um, uh, in uh, 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 in the antiquity of the English Constitution, so as I say, Hume began, be- begins as a metaphysician and a study as a student of the organ of, of the history of the mind. He ends, in fact, as one of the most sophisticated of all um, Enlightenment historians. Um, and as I say, um, I don't think any historian I can think of has ever drawn on such a profound insight into the, the, into the nature of the historical process, the historicity of human society as Hume. And I don't believe that any philosopher has shown the depth of the, political, uh, of the historical sophistication that Hume was able to show um, in analysing um, uh, uh, in, 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 in analyzing the uh, peculiar properties of the human species. Thank you very much.
Thank you. Um, we have some time for questions. Who would like to start? Yes, please. A couple of basic questions to begin with, but uh, you, you did seem to answer this, but is it the history of England or is it the English-speaking uh, people? Um, and uh, in the reading of that, did you get the sense that it was to do with the evolution of man or the evolution of mind over a period of time? similar to Hegel, as I understand it. And then there's three sentences that you used. I just want to bring them together and then ask a question on it. You mentioned that he felt that reason, uh, there was reason which he was critical of, perhaps we call it lower reason, but then there was reason supercharged. And then another sentence you, you mentioned was that uh, you could not attribute truth to the mind, but obviously he must have accepted that truth existed. And then lastly, you mentioned that religion was the only force to turn mind to the light hereafter. And I believe he said that religion, uh, he could only accept a religion that was based on the authority of the self. And so my final question comes back to what, what was his philosophy of the self, which I believe is a bit... Oh, wow. <laughs> in, 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 in nine minutes. <laughs> um, Reason, uh, the, the different levels of reason, reason is supercharged. Um, Hume's problem with um, claims about the authority of reason, which are made in, uh, have been made since antiquity um, and made in different ways, um, that uh, uh, he claimed that he was reviewing, in effect, the way in which reason had been discussed since antiquity. Um, not anticipating the, the ways in which reason will be understood in a post-Humean world. That's, that's one of the reasons that you know, there's a break uh, in, uh, in, in the history of philosophy in that way. Reason supercharged, um, uh, 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 Hume of course did not use the term supercharged, um, but the point was that um, it was the question of what powers was reason invested with. Hume's point was that none of the powers that reason was supposed to be invested with stood up to his own experiments in deconstructing uh, his own beliefs. Beliefs, you know, beliefs about beliefs about beliefs about beliefs. <coughs> At some stage, the question was, and it's a, it's a sort of post-Malbranchian question, at some stage, if you pursue this sceptical line, of looking about um, of the nest of beliefs. Where does the nest end? And is that the point at which you will realize that, 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 that we do have, that there is a mental property which is capable of stopping this, um, this declension um, and stopping us from total, un, uh, um, um, from total cognitive annihilation? And Hume, Hume found that reason did not have that power, and he couldn't see any reason why it should anyway. And of course, as you know, the interesting thing was you nevertheless do stop that process of deconstruction because you know mental hospitals are full of people who've tried to do it, um, and they go mad. Um, and that, of course, is where new chapters in 
Hume's history writes out. But the supercharging uh, was um, the assumptions which are made in some theological quarters about the uh, about the, the the necessary and inherent powers of reason. He saw no reason to to believe that on inspection and on testing those what those powers were to be that the, the, these these could said to be exist, and certainly not for any of us. Um, now, um, truth. The one thing that uh, um, I'm going to draw a little bit on Adam Smith with this. Of course, we think there is a thing called truth. I mean, I'm a devout religious believer, and I do actually believe that. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm absolutely sure the Bible tells me uh, that, that that I do have rational powers which allow me to, uh, to 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 understand the being and nature of God under certain circumstances. Um, I, uh, and I actually know that's true. And I mean, you know, lots of people think like that. Most people think like that, probably. Um, but that doesn't necessarily make it true. Um, and the thing, the um, and Adam Smith, who I happen to believe is a really brilliant, brilliant student of, of, of Hume's, uh, and a critical student, actually, of, of, of Hume's philosophy, um, does in fact use the notion of truthfulness. Everyone has a sense of truthfulness, and, and in fact we need it. Um, I, I mean, you, you couldn't actually get on through uh, uh, through ordinary life. You couldn't you couldn't decide whether to cross the road unless you had a sense that that was truthful. Uh, you know, uh, 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 that it was true. That there was no car coming down the road just when I was going to going to cross the. Um, um, the road. Smith does talk about truthfulness, and I think I would say, by extension, that that is a proposition. The, the notion that we have to have a sense of truthfulness is something that Hume would not have disagreed with. He doesn't talk about that in those terms, but I would make that assumption. And I th um, but I mean, Humeans may, may not quite agree. I'm not sure if Humeans, Humeans, Humeans would agree with that. Um, so, uh, um, we, uh, but the, um, in many respects, you could argue that the sense of truthfulness is actually one of the snags for Hume, because what happens when I decide that it's obvious? I mean, I know, all my friends know, my parents know, my grandparents know. It's in all the books that there was an ancient constitution. I mean, I actually, I mean, it's obviously true. I mean, if that's not true, then most of everything I've ever been taught is wrong. Most of the things that people I respect have told me are lies. Um, but what has happened is that instead of saying, well, this is likely to be true, or it might be true, it's difficult to say, or I don't believe it, um, the, Hume's point in, in a sort of ethical sense is that actually we don't Put, we don't subject our beliefs, particularly in this case about, about morals or, or, or politics, to that sort of scrutiny. And we do make this dangerous assumption that such and such is true. And once we do that, once we, we, um, then we are on the road to ascribing absolute values, which may be, will exercise them, it may be we'll get excited about it, we may actually fight about them. And that is when things get dangerous. Now, look, you ask other things. And I, uh, um, I suppose I've given you... The question behind that might be the philosophy of the self. I mean, I oh! Think, I think that was very helpful. I mean, you're, I mean this is a sceptical approach. Just, 
this is what we are not, and this is why we don't believe in this. But so I just get the impression he did have some sense of of truth and what he was and what man was. Do, do you know? I think the best way of thinking of that is that Hume deliberately and publicly stops using the word knowledge. Um, he encourages us to stop thinking about what we know and to ask instead, what is our understanding? We all have an understanding of the world, but that understanding, the truth value of that, as judged by, I suppose, a modern mathematician or by an Archimedean, um, that's a mistake. And he wants us to think, um, in, his, uh, in his later work, uh, in, though that is in fact anticipated in the treatise, it's much more interesting to say that what we acquire from the world is an understanding which actually is in some sense useful. It's functional. Um, and um, so um, we're moving out of a world of truth into a world of understanding and understanding and actually in some sense or many senses actually the utility value uh, of understanding but again there is a message in all of this that we should be very you know he wants us to practice cognitive hygiene um, 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 and particularly relevant I think in Hume's own particular world because after all well, certainly in the case of Scots I mean they're under undergoing a political and religious re revolution in Scotland, none, uh, you know, in, in terms of getting used to the union, getting used to the increasing commercialization of Scottish life, but even much more so in England. I mean, Europe is changing out of all recognition. We don't have a lot of oh, time. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm babbling. No, 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 no. <laughs> we have time for perhaps two more quick questions, but they'll have to be quite brief, I'm afraid. Um, please. My question doesn't is, is based entirely on what you've said and not on any reading. But what, I want to check out whether I've got it right, as it were. So the sense I'm getting is that, that, that he, he, he sees history as a sort of... Uh, as being a... Uh, being, as it were, traditionally um, played out between rival interpretations of tradition. And, 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 what, and he doesn't believe that's really what's going on, that the people are actually operating in a much more evolutionary sense, so they're responding to, to present circumstances and thinking this isn't rather like folk out on, outside St. Paul, thinking no, this is not all about traditional rights or things, it, it's just that things aren't right for now, and think that we have to sort of find a new, as you say, a truthfulness rather than a, an absolute truth. And, and so he's, he's almost bringing... Seems to be sort of bringing out an evolutionary consciousness rather than a, rather than a sort of a, 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 a rivalry ideologies almost. I don't know. I'm yes, not there, there is a um, there is a sort of an evolutionary um, sort of undertow mm. um, to that, and it's quite interesting because other historians in Scotland will respond to that evil, the evolutionary character uh, more than I think Hume did. I think Hume was aware of it was you had to be careful about that. Um, and actually, you know, in the hands of um, a second generation, once you get to the world of Hegel and so forth, that notion of evolution is going to be, uh, you know, it's a torrent. Yeah. Um, but I think that it, it would be interesting to know what 
um, Hume made about what's going on outside St. Paul's. Um, but you're quite right to say that, I mean, he would have to explain it in terms of a response to immediate, to immediate circumstances. Um, but what would interest him, I think, are the formulas that the people outside St. Paul's used to explain these pressures which were on them, which are of all sorts of different sorts. And he would be interested, and he was in the case of the English, I mean, why do you use these formulas? Um, are these, uh, uh, and what are these formulas about, uh, uh, really about? And are the, uh, and, and actually, horror of horrors, um, you, uh, are, are these, uh, is, is all this going to make people very angry and violent? Thank you. Yeah. And, um, just a question about uh, what you said about religion. Um, it, it seems right, as you pointed out, that Hume was convinced that religion was a major factor in the creation of factions and religious enthusiasm as a matter of fact. But what is it exactly, according to Wu, uh, or what is Hume's opinion on the cause why religion becomes so dominant? It can't be only the fact, as you briefly mentioned, the fact that there is a sort of belief in afterlife which made people turn into enthusiasm. Because you could, for the same count, uh, speak about enthusiasm, for example, in the 20th century, people turning to a sort of, of ideology, take Marxism or even fascism, where the idea of a personal afterlife isn't dominant at all, and even ignored. So what could it be that in the 17th century especially made people turn to religion? Or what made religion so dominant that it became a major factor in, in the creation of factions? Well, at one level, the, the, the answer is um, a simple one, and actually goes back to the origins, uh, Hume on the origins of Christianity in, in, in England, um, and that is priestcraft. Um, the, the history of religion as an abstract concept, independently uh, of the priests and the church, the ecclesiastical system which enforces it, and the different types of religious institutions that exist, um, um, all of that matters hugely and actually one of the standard ways of getting at Hume on religion is to say that actually he I mean he loathes priests apart from his close friends who are priests he likes them even though they have to watch what they talk about but um, but basically he has not a nice word to say about priests anywhere and in many um, um, you could argue you could build up a case of saying he's really hung up on the ghastliness of priests um, and on the insidiousness with which priests play on insecurities and on fears and on our desire to make sense of the fears. And he has a wonderful essay, which people don't read enough, uh, called Natural History of Religion, one of his late essays, um, in which um, he, he, uh, um, he shows you, you, uh, you know, how one of the characteristics of human beings in all societies is to know how to cope with disaster. Um, you know, if there are ghastly rainstorms and you're being flooded out and, and you're living in Bangkok, I mean, how actually do you explain it? You need an answer because you need to know what to do to see if you can avert disaster. Or whether you've just got to submit yourself to, to, um, to ruin. And that will mean that you're talking about causes. If the causes aren't visible, then you go to invisible causes. Now, that essay is actually... Is, a controversial essay, but um, it does mean that at every point that there are people explaining causation um, and you're dealing with p 
partly philosophers, but then priests, and then priests, and, and then priest hijacked philosophy. Um, this production is copyright the University of Edinburgh